Greetings and welcome to Karma Light Conversations. We're so glad you are turning, tuning into our podcast where we discuss Karma Light spirituality. Today, we are starting a series on contemplation. We're going to be using the teachings of the great discast Carmelite mystic and doctor of the church, St. John of the Cross. We will be discussing this topic using the book, St. John of the Cross, Master of Contemplation by Father Donald Haggerty. It's my great joy to have with me today someone who was foundational as a host to these Carmelite conversations for many, many years. Then he was called to become a deacon, and so he needed to step away for a time. He's back now and is ready to do this series with me and excited to discuss Carmelite spirituality with us again. So please welcome Deacon Mark Danis. Hi, Francis. Great to be back with you again. I don't remember the last time you and I had the uh, opportunity for a conversation like this, but uh, I certainly look forward to today and for a continuing series of conversations in this particular work, which I think is so important for us, for Carmel, and for the church right now, and that is a deeper understanding of St. John of the Cross's teaching on contemplation. So thank you for uh, the opportunity to get back with you in studio. Well, I am thrilled and excited myself to have this opportunity to be back with you. Feels like old times already, just in this introduction. However, you know, we always want to start with an opening prayer. So I'm going to ask you, Deacon Danis, would you please begin us in a prayer, please? Certainly. Let's uh, recollect ourselves, bring ourselves into a place of quiet, see if we can dispense with whatever may have uh, brought itself into our thoughts and imagination before beginning uh, listening to this conversation. We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we seek the only goal of the human experience, and that is union with you. We are invited, even in this life, to encounter and to experience that intimacy. Through contemplation, we are called to remove the barriers and to avail ourselves of the work that the Holy Spirit does in sanctifying us and preparing us for that encounter. And so today we ask that we might be given the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to communicate the teachings of this master of contemplation, St. John of the Cross, and impart them to our listeners. And that Francis and I alone may avail ourselves of a deeper desire for this transformation. We ask the intercession of the Blessed Mother, of the saints in Carmel, and most especially of St. John of the Cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Let's begin our conversation with the definition of the word contemplation in the Carmelite sense. So I'm going to take this right from St. John of the Cross. He says, contemplation is nothing else but a secret, peaceful, and loving inflow of God into the soul, which, if admitted, will set the soul on fire with the spirit of love. I just love this definition, divine inflow of God into the soul. And so today we're going to be focusing on how God hides within our souls and the caverns of the soul, the deep longing that the soul has for God and the effects of the theological virtues on the faculties of the soul. With that, I'm going to let Mark take it away. Well, I want to capitalize on that definition. I think there are two important points there. The first is, um, this is principally the work of the Holy Spirit. This is God taking initiative, the, the Trinity working within us. What we do is avail ourselves of that um activity that action on our soul and the way we do it most especially and john talks about this extensively we'll uh covered here today and in continuing conversations but the vast majority of our work is simply removing the obstacles the obstacles that we've acquired throughout the course of our life 
Um, one other thing I would emphasize in taking right from our text that you've already mentioned, St. John of the Cross, Master of Contemplation, my father, Donald Haggerty, who has also written a series of four other books on contemplation. He is quickly becoming a master of contemplation himself and has shared his knowledge and wisdom with many um, and then turn to the master of contemplation, uh, at least the one that we in Carmel most uh, look to for an understanding of contemplation, that being St. John of the Cross. But John, St. John of the Cross, makes it clear um, that a soul must be serious about giving itself away in a sacrificial generosity and a decisive uh, effort of living this interior life. I emphasize, Francis, so often in our previous conversations that our conversations, I don't think, are for everybody. Um, this is requiring that individuals who want to pursue this path, want to pursue the interior life, want to pursue contemplation, and ultimately, with the end of union with God, must make a serious commitment. And I would also say, as John of the Cross said, um, in his own writings, what he has written, what he has offered, what Father Haggerty is trying so well, I think, to translate for us is not for beginners. It's not necessarily for people who may just be starting out in their spiritual journey or in their prayer life. You can certainly benefit from listening and understanding what may be ahead, but you have to have made some commitment to silent prayer, to recollection, and to um, a change of life that are necessary for the foundation uh, of this uh, this union that we that we talk about. And I think that some of the concepts that we're going to talk about might um, be misunderstood by somebody new to prayer or a beginner in prayer, um, because uh, as we go into the deeper regions of prayer, different expectations. Um, different mortifications are needed in order to draw us forward. And of course, um, generosity of soul is very important. This desire for God and that constant self-offering um, and self-surrender to God is so important. Right. The, the other um, point about his definition that you read um, that I want to emphasize People talk about contemplation, we talk about methods, we talk about uh, technique, and we talk about consequences and how we respond to things that may be happening. Um, fundamentally, if we were to sort of, you know, brush all that aside for a moment, we have to keep this very clear focus. Contemplation is about love. It is about transformation of the human person into that which we were created in, which is an image of love. We have acquired throughout the course of our life uh, both at sometimes uh, by our own fault and many other times by consequence of the human experience and being uh, wounded and rejected and suffering through a whole source, uh, a, a series of um, obstacles and trials. It, it is called the human experience. But nonetheless, that has impeded our ability to um, allow ourselves to be transformed in love. And I emphasize this, allow ourselves. We don't do this ourselves. There are things we are responsible for, but we cannot transform ourselves into the image that God has created us in, which is the same image of himself, which is love. And so um, if we wanna stay focused on one word, it is love. And it is this idea then of being transformed into love. You know, ultimately we will all, be brought into the presence of God, whether that happens in uh, some measure here in this life, what we call union, or through the process of purgation uh, in a state called purgatory. But we all must be prepared. We must be made ready for that encounter. So this isn't optional. Nothing that we're talking about here today is optional for the human soul. It is all necessary if you are uh, going to um, be called to glory and, and reign with God in, in eternity in heaven. Um, but there are opportunities made available to those who are willing and, and desirous uh, to do some of this work, if not most of this work, while here in this life. And the height of the um, exercise, if you will, is contemplation, what John describes as contemplation. So uh, go ahead. This contemplation state is, is love, 
And so that indicates that there's a relationship with God. And so we we need to get to know him. We need to get intimate with him. And the way we do that is through prayer, a dedicated prayer life, both inside formal times of prayer and in our regular um, going through the day, um, keeping right. our mind on God and our relationship right. with him. It's all about love. Yeah. And, and I would use uh, Teresa of Avila's analogy here. Um, uh, unlike most of us who go through some sort of courtship, many have had uh, relationships throughout the course of their life, romantic relationships. Um, at this stage, we're in the early still uh, phases of that. And our primary objective, as I said a moment ago, is to remove the obstacles, uh, the impediments to a deeper encounter. Everybody knows this when you begin to date and uh, get to know somebody who you may have initially been attracted to. Things will reveal themselves about that person and about ourselves um, that may serve as impediments to a deeper, more intimate, more vulnerable um, relationship, one where we, we build trust. And so those obstacles have to be identified, they have to be brought to the surface, and they have to be removed. It most often happens through something in human interaction we call conversation. And again, to rely on uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, prayer is nothing but a conversation with him who we know loves us. And so we're back to this relatively simple description here, a conversation in love with the one we know loves us. That is a, 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 an alternative, I guess, a description for contemplation. Now, there are some concepts that we're going to cover which are uh, more challenging than that. And, um, and certainly intellectually will require a little bit of work. But uh, fundamentally, I want to stay with, with the basic understanding of the significance, the importance of love, of conversation, and of removing obstacles to a deeper, more intimate relationship. That's what this is about. And St. John of the Cross is so in love with God that he wants everybody to be there with him. And so he's going to try to offer us the most direct path to God. And if we read through John of the Cross just once, I I don't think we're going to catch everything that we need to get. So this is um, where I would suggest that St. John of the Cross becomes a partner, um, a guide, a mentor all of our life long to help us on this journey of prayer. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, John's written the most comprehensive work on contemplation, on prayer uh, in the history of the church, I think, bar none. Um, and it is not, uh, you know, sort of light fare for the average reader. Uh, it does take some work. There are some intellectual aspects here. Our intellect is brought to bear uh, to understand what he's saying. It is ultimately applied through the act of contemplation and what is contemplation for that matter what is prayer you've given a good definition of contemplation what is prayer prayer is not an act it is not a uh, exclusively anyway a, a series of actions that we undertake it is a disposition it is a state of being it is an awareness it is a presence as uh, brother lawrence of the resurrection another great carmelite uh, teaches us the practice of the presence of God. It is to be aware of God's presence and it is to make ourselves available to that presence. And to that end, uh, John says, the thing we must do, we must make ourselves available. He had advocates, of course, a great deal of time alone in front of a crucifix, a monstrance, or even a tabernacle. We can't minimize the importance of that. We cannot always pray just walking down the street as much as we should do that. And we advocate that. John certainly does. Other great saints do. Um, I, I say again, prayer is a, a disposition, a state of mind. Um, but we also have to make formal time to be uh, in silence and, and to be in a place where that encounter can occur. And the three most uh, ideal uh, uh, locations are before a crucifix, before a monstrance with the, the host, of course, um, exposed and failing that before a tabernacle. Uh, those um, environments tend to facilitate what it is that we're discussing here. In fact, to quote John specifically, he says, what we need most in order to make progress is to be silent before this great God with our appetite, and we'll talk about that, and with our tongue for the language he best hears is silent love. So we might ask ourselves, well, how do I engender this love? 
How do I express it? Well, the very first thing we just said, sitting before a monster and sitting before crucifix, uh, sitting in a room before a tabernacle is an expression of love. It says, I want something, Lord. I want something to happen. I want to make it clear to you that I want to meet with you. I want to have this encounter. Um, and so that's our first responsibility. And John says, we must do that. I'll just briefly discuss the, the appetites. We're going to talk about that in much greater detail, not as much today, but in future conversations. But it basically has to do with those things that otherwise garner our attention, those things that um, are passions or or um, things that we pursue that may serve as distractions and impediments. So I just want to touch on that so that we don't miss the point on that. And in Carmel, um, we talk about going from moments of prayer to a life of prayer and part of our um obligations as a discount carmelite secular is like morning prayer evening prayer and 30 minutes of mental prayer um and then going to mass um devotion to the blessed mother so these are things to help us um stay in um keep in contact with our beloved with god and to develop this relationship to do what we can to predispose our soul to be good soil for the seed right. of god right. that, and that's a good analogy is tilling the soil to make it ready for the seed i say that because it just so happens we're in the cycle of readings right now that uh, that particular gospel reading has been made available to us um, that we want to be good soil for the work of the spirit and as I say, much of the preparation is removing the rocks and the weeds and uh, those things that uh, insects, if they exist in our in our experience, uh, those things that have served as, as impediments and, and let the Lord do the work. So making ourselves rich soil. Well, Mark, uh, as anyone who has prayed very long has experienced, God's favorite game seems to be hide and seek. He yeah. likes to feel himself. He likes to hide. Can you speak to that for us? Yeah, Father Haggerty goes right to the heart of this issue. And of course, everybody can relate to this. Anybody who's made serious efforts at prayer can understand what John teaches about the apparent absence of God in prayer. We don't see the vision. We don't hear the voice. We don't feel the touch. Uh, and these are the normal means by which the human person and human interaction typically occurs. And so absent those uh, elements in this encounter, we are left struggling with trying to come in contact with um, a God who appears to be absent. John emphasizes, and I think Father Haggerty does a wonderful job in, in bringing this to the surface, that there is a difference between absence and concealment. Concealment, of course, means hidden. He's there, uh, but he's not available to us immediately. We we can't, as I say, encounter him through the typical senses. Um, we must be able to distinguish these two because in one case, yes, God uh, would be um, not there at all, uh, absent, but that's not the case when we're beginning this deeper encounter with him. He conceals himself. We'll talk about why. So the question really is, where is he to be found? And we must first learn to practice this interior disposition. I remember we've talked about this in previous programs, Francis, years ago, hearing this phrase, the interior life, and really having no idea, maybe even for some of our readers still, uh, having no idea what this phrase means, the interior life. Um, it isn't just mental thought it, it goes much deeper than that but there is a world available to us um, deep within the interior of our soul that calls us as the place of concealment for god that's where he's hidden in the human soul and so you see the significance then of our discussion about removing the impediments if you like the analogy um, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash's old song, we've got to make our way back to the garden. We've got to get back to the garden. Yeah, the garden is the interior of our soul. And we almost, in a sense, and Father Haggerty brings this out, have to be hidden ourselves in order to come in contact with God who's hidden within our soul. 
this whole process of contemplation is about um, allowing ourselves to take the journey, to undertake the journey um, towards the interior of our soul and, and overcoming the obstacles that are inevitable along that path. And, um, and then giving ourselves the opportunity in, in our hiddenness uh, to find God concealed within our souls. And so that's, that's what we're going to talk about here. But one of the obstacles, Mark, seems to be ourself. <laughs> and many people, when they go to prayer, they're like taking their prayer temperature. You know, what is good prayer? They're measuring the prayer. Well, it's good prayer if I'm, um, uh, if I receive some kind of consolation or a, a new insight or I feel something or I see something or I hear something. And of course, that's, that's not an indicator of good prayer. Uh, sometimes our best prayer is the one that's most, uh, distracted because we've had to work so hard to come back to the prayer. So we've, we've exercised our prayer muscle. Um, but we often get in the way just with our ego. So, so what is it? What's the secret of getting out of self and onto God? Well, it's love. It's loving God. So taking the attention off self and putting it on God. And that is what will help us to um, develop this selflessness and this um, love for God. Yeah, and that sounds easy on the surface, doesn't it? Oh, I'll just stop thinking about myself and I'll, um, you know, endeavor to think about God. Um, that is an accurate description of what we're talking about, but not easily achieved. So let's bring in a word that is pervasive throughout John's teaching on contemplation and uh, nonetheless is very seldom well understood. And that word is detachment. We understand detachment in the early phases of prayer. And let's talk about vocal and mental prayer first. So vocal prayer are those prayers that we've all learned. The Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the Rosary is a perfect example. The Apostles' Creed, there are, you know, literally millions of prayers available. The prayer we pray to the beginning here, uh, Francis, uh, extemporaneously, but nonetheless, an expression vocally of our aspiration, our desire to uh, um, have God uh, guide us on this conversation. Um, in vocal prayer we are obviously engaging our vocal cords but also the mind whether we're reading or we're thinking of something extemporaneously we are engaging the mind and when we do that we can then move into mental prayer where we're using the images our ability uh, to imagine and our uh, ability to uh, create uh, images within within our mind and to think about what we're saying not just say it but to think about what we're saying see if it has meaning apply it to ourselves well in this now third phase of prayer contemplation we're going to have to learn to move beyond that and detach ourselves why because in those early phases we've created an understanding expressed in vocal prayer we've created imagery um, envisioned in our own minds and our memory and so forth uh, of, of this relationship we have with God. But all of those fall short of the reality. And so when we move into contemplation, we have to start thinking about detaching ourselves from those previous crutches, if you will, those expectations, those um, sources that we relied on uh, to get us to this phase. What did we learn? We learned that God loves us. We learned that he knows our name. We learned that we're created for eternity, not for the temporal order. We know that obstacles are going to occur. We know we're going to have suffering, but it isn't an indication that we've somehow lost our These things we know in a sort of academic perspective, right? Um, and I draw here on a, a corporate phrase that I, uh, I used to use and is very popular in corporate circles my old life that says, what got you here will not get you there. It was the desire for entry into the corporate boardroom and what made you a good foot soldier or a, a frontline manager or even an early executive is not the skill set that will um, you know, invite you into the boardroom. It's a whole different approach um, to your career. It's the same here. What got you here, vocal and mental prayer, will not get you into contemplation. And in fact, you're going to have to detach yourself from much of that. Why detachment? 
the best description, and I wish I could remember who I heard this from, um, of this idea of detachment at this level. And, and again, just to um, lay the groundwork, when we were in those early phases of prayer, we would talk about detachment as, oh, I must detach myself from TV or from too much reliance on um, you know, certain relationships or too much reliance on uh, uh, academic. What's that? Material things. <laughs> yeah, material things, certainly. All those things that, that are um, in and of themselves not bad, but nonetheless can serve as impediments to our deeper prayer life. Here, though, detachment takes on a new meaning, a deeper meaning. It is really detachment from our false self. Now, think about this. If we were created as an image of love and the image of God, and that is our destiny to be called to that in every, I like to say it this way, where every thought, word, and deed is simply an expression of love. That's our ultimate destiny. That's that's what we'll be in heaven. And would we want to be in heaven if we were anything other than that? And for that matter, would we want to be bouncing off other souls who are anything other than that? No, of course not. But in order to get there, we have to detach ourselves from our false self. What's the false self? It is anything we've created in our own mind, in our own perception of what God is and of what we are before him that is inconsistent with what I just described as uh, the fullest expression of love. Every thought, every word, every deed is an expression of love. By the way, that's the Trinity. Our father um, thought, uh, you know, into existence. The Lord is the expression of that, the word, and the Holy Spirit acts in us. Every thought, word, and deed is an expression of love. We are models of the Trinity in that regard. So this is the path we're on. This is what we have to do. Um, and this is what John is teaching us about um, in terms of entering into um, this uh, disposition of, of contemplation. And really, um, it, it is trying to enter into this transcendent mystery of god that is so infinite that you know we can't we can't define it and if we do try to define it then we limit it so we have to know that it is, it is beyond our reach and yet god wants to stoop down to us to share himself with us right and, and Part of that is him hiding, right? Yes, this concealment. And so you raised the question a moment ago, I think anyway, um, you know, why concealment? Why does God conceal himself? Well, think again about the two lovers, let's say finding themselves in the evening in the moonlight in a garden, right? And one of them chooses to uh, hide him or her, her, herself. They're, you know, um, Define meeting time as a certain hour. And yet one of the lovers uh, wants to, um, you know, increase the anticipation and the expectation and, you know, sort of the, the joy of that encounter. And so they hide themselves behind a tree for a few moments, uh, not revealing, not walking out into the moonlight. And what does the other lover do? Well, they go searching for the one they love, right? And they call out to them. This is John's own language, by the way. I called out to you, you know, lover. Uh, and so this is, in effect, what God's doing. It's a very a sort of simple explanation, but uh, nonetheless accurate as to what God is doing. He's concealing himself in the darkness behind the shadows, and we go looking for him. What happens when, when we go looking and we don't find him right away? It increases our desire. There may even be some measure of anxiety over the, the fear that the lover is, in fact, absent, has never shown up at the garden. But nonetheless, our experience is, that we are increasing our desire to find the lover and to have that encounter. And that's why God actively conceals himself in the early stages of this relationship. I remember when I first read that in John of the Cross that I was like, having served in the military, as you well also know, that when somebody was sent on the tour of duty, you know, they had to go across the, the world or just across the nation even, and they're gone for a week or two or a month or a year, you know, that absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Yeah. And and it's it's like you work so hard to make the moments you are together so precious and you you clear the schedule so that when you do have time together, it's 
it's as best as you can make it. And so we have to clear our souls of any attachment, any preconceived notions of God so that he can be who he is rather than right. us limiting him. And so this is where John of the Cross talks about caverns of the soul. Can you talk to us about the caverns of the soul? Yeah, so this desire unfulfilled initially, um, and, and to be fair, this could be for long periods of time. You know, God will give us, we'll discuss this in future conversations, but he'll give us these momentary encounters uh, as ways to keep us sort of on the path. But there may be long extended periods of time where we don't experience that encounter. What happens as a result of that? Again, it's imperfect, but it's what we have available to us. And it's this whole idea of courtship, two young lovers. Um, first of all, I have an image, um, if, if it's me as the male and anticipating the encounter with my beloved woman, I have an image of what she is going to look like. I, I remember her face. I've seen it perhaps, you know, recently. And so I have images of it. But when she steps out of the shadows into the moonlight, what is the experience? It's always one of, oh, I didn't, I didn't remember how beautiful you are. You know, and and the presence of the of the beloved will always engender that reaction of, I had forgotten even how beautiful you are. So this concealment that we talked about um, creates, as John describes it, these deep caverns of desire. It just keeps increasing, and, and we might say, well, but if it's unfulfilled, is that good? Yes, it is good because. The images that I described a moment ago of the way I anticipated encountering my beloved, they're all wrong. They're, they're something less than what is actually true. And so by removing the expectation about the beauty that I'm going to encounter, my desire grows deeper and deeper and deeper. If I keep creating the image in the way that I sort of remember it or anticipate it or, um, you know, envision it, it's something less than what it will really be. If I stop doing that and I wait in that desire, in that um, uh, moment of, of anticipation, the cavern, the desire gets deeper and deeper and deeper. This is exactly what God wants. I want to read from um, one of the passages that Father Haggerty chose from John's writings that I think is um, a, a good description of this, and it's from the spiritual canticle, uh, specifically one uh, twelve. And here's what John of the Cross says: "You do well, O soul, to seek Him ever as one hidden, for you exalt God and approach very near Him when you consider Him higher and deeper than anything you can reach. Hence, pay no attention, neither partially nor entirely, to anything your faculties can grasp." I mean that you should never seek satisfaction in what you understand about God, but in what you do not understand about him. Never pause to love and delight in your understanding and experience of God, but love and delight in what you cannot understand or experience of him. Such is the way, as we said, of seeking him in faith. However surely it may seem that you find, experience, and understand God, because he is inaccessible and concealed, you must always regard him as hidden and serve him who is hidden in a secret way. Now again, um, the, the analogy to human love and human courtship sort of falls short here because we're talking about God, something uh, far more immense than we could ever encounter, even in the most loving relationship. But what John is saying is we must begin to detach ourselves from our expectations, from our preconceived notions, from the vision of God that we created. It's somewhat analogous to uh, the Israelites in the desert, when they had uh, believed that they had, um, you know, sort of lost their way, what did they do? They created the molten calf, right? They created God in their own image. image. And we do that. Uh, they were doing it in, in a much more, uh, unfortunately for themselves, destructive way, uh, because they, they were seeking his favors. But we do the same thing. We create an image of God, our expectations about him, and then we project those onto him. And again, we're talking about a loving encounter. This isn't about trying to secure God's favors by God, give me, you know, um, financial benefits or health benefits or whatever. We're, we're, we're sort of beyond that. That's why I say this is a much deeper form of prayer now. This is not simply uh, intercession or 
uh, pleading with God for the things we need in our life. All those levels of prayer, by the way, are perfectly appropriate. They don't go away. We don't dispense with them. But we're now talking about an encounter, a loving encounter, a desire to be transformed. And so um, we are speaking about not wanting to create for ourselves the image of God, which will always be something less than the reality of him. We have to accept He's hidden, he's concealed in the shadows, and he's inviting us into those shadows. What is necessary? It is necessary to detach ourselves from our expectations as to where and when we're going to find him, uh, the, the um, experience of what that will be like, and leave it up to him to reveal himself to us in any way he may choose to do that, but exclusively on his, uh, on his initiative. And by hiding... Um that increases our desire and so that's where saint john the cross talks about the caverns of the soul and i i wanted to point out here um from the third stanza of the living flame of love um what john of the cross wrote now keep in mind when he wrote this um i think he was still in the prison cell um that the Kaust carmelites had put him because of the political yeah. is issues between the Kaust and the Discaust at that time. Yeah. In Toledo, but, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So this is what he writes. And this is this is really a soul so in love with God. And I think just hearing it, of course, we're doing it in English, but people who read it in the Spanish that, that St. John the Cross wrote in say it's even more beautiful. So um, but here it is in the English translation. O oh, lamps of fire, in whose splendors the deep caverns of feeling, once obscure and blind, now give forth so rarely, so exquisitely, both warmth and light to their beloved. So that is what John of the Cross is uh, writing. And he's really trying to describe how the faculties of memory, intellect, and will um, in their capacity for contemplative graces and sanctity, how they're being drawn out to grow in union. And that's the relationship with God, the union. Right. So you moved us into the faculties. Uh, I, I, I want you to talk about that for no, us. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I, I do want to make sure to talk about it because for John, and this is sort of um, traditional uh, Thomistic theology, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, though Thomas does something a little bit different with the faculties and the virtues. And let's just talk about that quickly. The human faculties are intellect. We all know what that is. Memory, um, which bears a little bit of description. Memory is not just a series of images that we've collected throughout the course of our life and re we retain in our imagination. Memory is really the entire um, human experience, everything up to the moment in time where you uh, may be discussing, as we are now, this idea of memory. Everything that's ever happened to me is projected onto me in some way, my childhood, my young adulthood, my early adult experiences, my later years in life, raising children, uh, you know, marriage, jobs, all this. All of those impact us in some way. Every encounter we have with another human person impacts us in some way. And so the memory is the collective experience of the person um, manifested oftentimes through images that we retain, but, but recognizing it's everything that's occurred, both good and bad, by the way. Um, and then thirdly is the will. The will is what drives all human activity. Every major accomplishment of, of um, human history is a consequence of a will brought to bear to uh, express a desire, you know, whether it's building a pyramid or uh, building a business, raising a family, achieving uh, some great outcome in sports, whatever. It's the will that drives that. So what is John talking about? These three human faculties, the principal faculties that drive all human behavior, must be perfected. They must first be purified and emptied, and then they must be filled with God, the fullness of God. How does that work? What's the three virtues? Faith for the intellect, hope for the memory, and love for the will. What do we mean? Our intellectual ability, capacity, uh, means of sort of um, discerning 
our experience of life, must be perfected by faith. Faith is above and beyond the human intellect. Why? Because the intellect, the human intellect, is limited. We are wounded. Our nature is wounded by virtue of the fall. We have limitations. And those limitations are not dispensed with. They're overcome by faith. What does that mean? Faith can teach me things that the intellect cannot fully grasp. How is that possible? And I'll just deal with intellect for the moment. It is first necessary to empty the intellect of those things that are not based in faith in God in order to have my intellect elevated in faith to God. So that if I perceive God in sort of a, uh, you know, uh, fatherly, but but uh, um, just a rule-based approach to him, um, well, that's a limitation I've imposed on God. It's not accurate. It's not um, clear. It's not fair. Um, but it's my intellectual understanding, either because that was my own experience with a father or because, um, you know, books I've read or what have you. Uh, I developed these uh, discrepancies, if you will, based on the limitations of my intellect. And they have to first be emptied. I have to empty my idea of who God is. Back to this issue of concealment, right? He's concealing himself in the garden, and I'm coming up with images of what I expect when he steps out from behind the tree or she steps out from behind the tree. And in fact, it will always be something greater than that. It is the same with the intellect. The intellect's limited capacity for understanding who God is must be dispensed with in favor of the faith in what I've just described. I know God exists. I know that he knows me. He knows me by name. He's called me to an eternal glory. And then we can build on that faith understanding. But faith will raise the intellect by allowing us to encounter things in our life that though they do not appear to redound to our benefit, in faith we know that they will. What do I mean? Suffering. We will encounter suffering in our life. There will be, especially in our spiritual life, and, and we can be led to believe mistakenly by our intellect, well, this is good for me or this is bad for me. No, they're neither good nor bad. If you're living in faith, everything redounds to your benefit. All things work together for good with those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, I can say that and you and I can intellectually grasp the, the meaning of those words. But until I enter a moment where all of a sudden that doesn't seem true anymore, I'm going to be limited by my intellectual expectations as to what my faith life and my journey with God should be. Faith allows me to rise above that limitation. The same is true with memory. We are filled with memories, not just the images, but the entire human experience up to this stage of our life. And we rely on those memories to sort of chart our course forward in life. Well, I've done this in the past and it worked for me. I've done that and it didn't work for me. That I have a particular affinity to. This I don't like. These things feed our, our uh, perception of the world and our human behavior. In John's context, he says, we must rely on hope exclusively. What does he mean? I hope in God. I hope in his love. I hope in his promise. Nothing else matters. I can dispense with reliance on my memory because I know that God has promised what he has written and expressed in his word, both written and in the mouth of Jesus Christ, what my eternal destiny is. And so I don't rely on memory. I rely on hope. What is hope? It is to desire without possessing. I desire the encounter with the living God, to be in union with Jesus Christ, and nothing will stand in my way. Nothing I've ever experienced in my life, good or bad. Um, I'll tell you who gave me some very good insight on this when I began reading him on this topic from the 10th chapter of Augustine's Confessions. He talks about the memory. And the way he describes it is, looking back on his own life, he saw ups and downs and you know, crises and 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 uh, joys and so forth. And what he had to resolve in his own mind was that no matter what happened to him in, in um, various events in his life, he could discern that God was there. God had never left his side. God was guiding his path all the way through. And when he came to accept that, the things that had happened to him, good or bad, had no meaning in and of themselves other than that God had been there. 
that is hope sort of looking backward and accepting my human experience for whatever it's been. But then looking forward and say, if he's always been there, if he's here now, he will be there. And so I hope in God. And it dispenses with the members. Paul in his letters um, talks about this and John picks up on it. That if we are filled with too many things that we rely on, let's go back to your analogy about the material benefits of life. We're filled with so many material blessings that we don't need hope. We're, we're comfortable. We're content. We may not be fully satisfied, but we reach, reach a level of contentment in this world. We may stop desiring God and hoping for him. Our memory of the material presence of a lot of support infrastructures, relationships and people and money and, you know, titles and all the rest of it will will um, sort of impede our ability to move forward in hope is actually I wrote a, a reflection here just in the last couple of days, the spiritual benefits of dissatisfaction. Um, it is good to be dissatisfied with life because this is not our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is to rest in God in eternity. And we must hope for that. And we must never become distracted by the memories that will assault us, both good and bad. Again, I say that the impact is if something good happened to me throughout the course of my life, I may hearken back and desire to be back in that situation. You know, when I had my good health and now I'm older and I don't have it, I may hearken back and go, if I just had my good health back, I would be happy. And God would say, no, keep moving forward. Or the bad thing that happened. Well, if I just hadn't experienced that pain in my life, I'd probably be happier now. And God would say, no, I was there in the midst of that pain. Keep moving forward in hope. And the it's will. Point out, in relationships, uh, this is a big problem because so many people depend on the other person to fulfill their needs in love. And if they come up with these feelings of dissatisfaction, which will naturally occur because the other person can't fulfill them all. Right. That's really a God calling. You you know, come to me. I can fulfill all your needs. So yeah. that dissatisfaction is the, hey, you know, turn your eyes to God because this is what your your soul yearns for. Not to say that your your physical spouse um, or your friends are, are not needed. No, they are. But they are in relationship in right order after god they come yeah. after god god is our primary um objective to be with him in relationship yeah you you explain that perfectly um one of the fears people have and the misunderstandings they have is well it appears as though john is saying i have to dispense with everything in my life yes as a means of encountering god because once that um relationship with God has has matured e even to some level all of those relationships all of those material blessings all of our intellectual capacity and our will will now be more perfectly directed we won't love less because of this we will love more because of it we won't um be diminished by our thought capacity, we will be enhanced by it. We've begun to understand how God views the world and how God views the events and what's happening from an intellectual standpoint. Um, once we have emptied ourselves of our human understanding, of our human memories, and of our human uh, loves and passions and appetites that we brought up uh, the term earlier, um, once these are perfected in God, then all of those things are now viewed through that lens and are seen for what their true purpose is, right? Now, listen, if I have a predisposition to, you know, 24-7 sports and and that's my passion and, and uh, I say, well, I'm going to give it up in hopes that when I get closer to God, he's going to give it back to me and I get to go back to 24-7 sports, that's probably not going to be true because that's misdirected. That's a misdirected uh, desire and passion um, and, and, and will. Uh, but all things will be viewed and and part of this detachment that we talked about earlier is in fact detaching ourselves entirely from things that are not ultimately leading us toward god that's the thing people struggle with what john writes because he's so clear every single element of your life your money your relationships your health your job your titles your history your legacy whatever it is if it is not directed toward union with god toward the 
um, intimate encounter for all eternity with God, then it must be dispensed with. If it is directed that way, it will be perfected in the way that God wants it to. Let's just talk quickly about the will. What perfects the will? Charity, love. I must love. Every thought, word, and deed is an, is an expression of love. When I am transformed into what it is that God is calling me to, that will be the perfection of the will. Today, the will is distracted. It goes in multiple different directions, right? Well, I think this would be good for me. I think that would be bad for me. I said this earlier. And we love things on the basis of what we think will redound to our temporal and temporary benefit. But God gives us a different understanding of the eternal in this uh, context. And he perfects the will in a way that what we will, what we desire, what our appetite is for, is only those things that will lead us to God. Ultimately, that's what we're called to. So overall, uh, the faculties then, um, the memory, intellect, and will are purified, emptied, and perfected through the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And exactly. so the faith purifies and perfects the intellect. Correct. And hope purifies and perfects memory. Correct. And charity purifies or perfects the will. Now, yeah. you, talk, you talked a and, lot about. Go, go ahead. ahead. Well, right. I was going to say, there, there's something else to be said about these faculties. Because we fill them up with something that is sufficient, you know, the earthly experience, the worldly experience. Well, I'm comfortable with my intellectual understanding of God, or I'm comfortable with, you know, the collection of memories that I seem to have reached some level of contentment or or stability. Our faculties have this um, limitless capacity, hunger, back to the deep caverns. The faculties of intellect, memory, and will have a limitless capacity. What the world does is it fills them to a level of contentment. I'm just okay with this. I'm, I'm sufficiently happy, you know? And, and what God would say is empty yourself of that and I will fill you with so much more for your intellect, for your memory, for your will. I will fill you with so much more if you rely on the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And we, we can't lose that. Um, the contemplative life, as we are going to increasingly see, demands this courageous effort of denying, losing, and renouncing, never just uh, as some sort of an ascetical discipline. You know, again, I said before, everybody hears detachment, and they go, well, yeah, I guess I'm going to be losing all the fun things in my life. I guess that's what this religion thing is all about. No, we're detaching ourselves from our false self. Yes, ascetical practice, self-denial, but it is done in order to carve a vast emptiness, I'm quoting Father Haggerty now, within the hidden inner regions of the soul so that they can be filled with God himself. Detachment from our false self opens up the floodgates, you know, empties out those those caverns and allows God then to fill him with fill them with himself. And of course, all of this is dependent on a very um, serious interior life and commitment to prayer. Right. Yes, exactly right. I mean, we're back to what we started with, and that is. This is not possible just by listening to Mark and Francis on this podcast. It's not possible just by reading John of the Cross. It's not possible in order to be achieved uh, by going to Mass every day, as admirable as that is. Uh, it is the highest form of prayer. But it does require a serious commitment to deep, interior, silent prayer. If you're not willing to make that commitment, you're not really genuinely desirous of being a contemplative. That's simply the way it is. I remember, and I've uh, remarked this many times, Francis, you know, the, the great uh, Carmelite um, who, who stood up at one of the conferences I attended, he since passed away, and he, he got up to give the homily after, uh, during Mass, after the Gospel reading, and we're all anticipating he's written books, he's a brilliant man, he's going to, you know, just, just fill us with all this wisdom. And he walks to the ambo and he leans quietly over into the microphone and he says, if you pray, God will come. If you do not pray, God will not come. And then he picked up the cane that he assisted his walking with to get to the ambo and he walked back to his chair and he sat down and he bowed his head. And that was his homily. Wow. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, 
That <laughs> homily has stayed with me more than any other homily I've ever heard in my life. I can quote it. It's obviously very brief, but the impact, if we do not enter silent prayer, we will not be called into contemplation. It's necessary. Why? Because we do not do this work. We do not do this work. We avail ourselves of it, but God does the work. We have to do the active work of detachment. We have to do the active work of making ourselves available. But ultimately, God enters those caverns. He helps empty them, and he does the work of refilling them. And if we don't avail ourselves of that opportunity, we won't have it. So just a point on this silence in prayer. It doesn't mean um, that you're not trying to be present to God because you it's it's not an emptiness of his presence but it is a emptying of self so that you can be focused on his presence so that exactly right and, yeah. and that there is love you yeah. know you know it's a, it's an, a sense of adoring god within right uh, but People in a wordless adoration it's an awe an yeah. a b sense of silence right Yes, exactly. People ask me that oftentimes in spiritual direction. So I'm going to enter contemplation, Mark. So I'm just sort of brain dead in the midst of this. Is that it? And I said, just the opposite. You'll be the most aware of the reality of your existence that you've ever been. That's when you enter contemplation. What does that mean? I have to silence all those other noises, if you accept that term, of the intellect, memory, and will. And when I do that, I will enter into this encounter. Now, again, not right away. It takes time. It takes a great deal of practice. It takes consistency. Um, but no, this is is uh, bringing ourselves into the deepest, uh, most elevated state of awareness that we can be. Why? Because we are, at our core, we are spiritual beings. Our deepest interior life, our greatest existence is within the soul. And there will be times when in that encounter, yes, there may be many, many hours that we'll sit alone in silence in the, in the chapel uh, before crucifix, monstrance, uh, tabernacle, what have you, where we won't experience anything. There won't be sort of a, um, you know, um, affirmation that we've done it correctly, right? But what is love? You just said a moment ago, it's love. Love is the centerpiece. What is love? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and it's kind. So be patient and kind in your contemplation. Avail yourself of the opportunity. Know that God will do the work. And know that you will be raised to the highest level of awareness. All of what you're experiencing in that intellect, memory, and will when it's crowded with the world is a distortion of who you really are. Who you really are at your core is love. You're an image of love. You're an image of God. And when we give ourselves the opportunity to encounter that and encounter God in that, then we will know that ourselves at our deepest level. St. Augustine also said, um, you know, words to the effect, um, he desired to know who God is and he desired to know who he himself was. Um, and the only way that that's going to happen, of course, is in this silent encounter with God. Okay, I'm just going to throw something out here because I, I think some of the listeners may be asking this within. And I would like to see, um, you know, what you would counsel on this. Uh, person goes to prayer and they're like, okay, I've been, I am uh, called away from doing the discursive and the meditation. So I understand that I'm called to this more silence. I'm being drawn within. And yet there's, they're sensing that, oh, I'm just wasting time here. Nothing happened. It doesn't feel good. Uh, the aridity, the dryness. Can you speak to that for us? Yeah, that's an inevitable part. You might just put it out there and anticipate this. It is an inevitable reality that when we enter this phase of prayer, listen, it, it I do the rosary every day in the chapel here in St. Vincent de Paul's homeless shelter with the women who join me. Um, it's relatively easy to stay active when you're praying the rosary. It's it's more challenging to be uh, involved in mental prayer and so forth. But but it's relatively easy. You're doing something, right? You're actively engaged. If you're doing mental prayer, if you're doing meditation, for example, it's easy because you're engaging the mind. When you enter into contemplation, our nature is to fall back to those um, 
practices that we're more comfortable with. So there is going to be a time in the desert where you're just not clear, you're not comfortable, you don't feel like you're doing anything, I'm not experiencing anything. And this is where love is called for, patience and kindness, to wait on the beloved. As he's concealed in that darkness, you have to wait. What do I experience then? Desire. Desire. Just don't lose the desire. What is the desire manifested in? The perfecting of the memory? Hope. I hope for this encounter. I desire, and I'm willing to wait for it. I'm not going to define it with my intellect. I love him because I know he loves me, and I wait in hope with patience and kindness for the encounter. There is going to be that darkness. Don't don't either believe somehow that you've uh, gone off the path when you experience it, because I'm telling you it will be true. John said it as much. Um, and don't uh, try to dispense with it. It is a necessary component. We must re-enter the desert. If we're going to get to the oasis, to the garden, we're going to have to travel through the desert. And so and some of these experiences... Unfortunately, a lot of people give up prayer then. And of course, that's the absolutely wrong answer. Never give up prayer. Always be going right. forward in prayer. Um, well, I, I'm so glad that you uh, talked to us about that. And there's a, also, I want to point out that we can't make contemplation, at least the infused contemplative prayer, this degree of prayer that we're talking about, we can't make that happen. So we go right. and we predispose ourselves through what we do through the day uh, by trying to be silent, by trying to focus not on self, but on God, let the God, the love for God overwhelm our egos and that we can focus on him. So we can only be disposed and then God infuses this contemplation as he sees fit when he sees fit to whom he sees fit and so um we we may talk about that and i just want to be clear that um it is a gift it is a grace for yes, us absolutely right um i want to read just a quick uh, i know we're coming to the end here uh, but uh, just a quick quote and then i'll provide some commentary on it the soul must journey by knowing god through what he is not rather than through what he is it must journey in so far as possible by a way of denial and rejection of natural and supernatural apprehensions meaning the ability to apprehend where i am i gave a talk i think you were there francis some years ago and talked about this journey through the desert and that we cannot rely on the traditional methods of navigation i.e the sun the compass and so forth those are natural they won't serve us what do we rely on I offered three examples and I'll reiterate them here. Silence, deep interior silence. That is a prerequisite for this encounter. Secondly, pray at night. Take the time to pray at night, even if only for 15 minutes. I know it's not easy. For me, it's become inevitable. I spend at least an hour in prayer in the middle of the night between two and three in the morning. I don't choose to do it. I didn't choose to do it. I'm happy to accept it. The Lord awakens me and that becomes a time of prayer. I could say a lot more about it, but we're running out of time. There is something very powerful to praying at night. And the last thing I'm going to say is adoration. We have to be before the monstrance or the tabernacle, or at the very least the crucifix. We have to be in a place that allows us to be served with the guidance, what I call navigation. Those three, silence, prayer at night, and some sort of reverent, um, exposure to our Lord, either in a, a chapel with a, a tabernacle, ideally a monstrance with the with the host exposed, or before a crucifix. These are the means of navigation through this desert. Expect to enter the desert. Use those as the means of navigation. All right. Well, uh, have we covered all the points that um, we were planning on, or did I not, miss? Not even close. But not even close. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. We, we we will pick it up um uh, okay in our next conversation we may just catch a few of the la latter pages of that second chapter and as i had discussed with you i think going through um the um uh, chapters uh, two at a time is about right uh, my last point i guess i i will take back one moment and say a reminder this is for people who want to enter into serious prayer your goal is holiness your goal is sainthood your goal is union with God. That's what this call is. Um, I don't believe that anybody's listening to this podcast who doesn't have those aspirations. So uh, we'll just accept that. But but be clear 
um, that this is a different um, encounter in prayer uh, than what may have gotten us here. And if you've already begun this journey and you're well along the path of contemplation, I read John every day. I, I wouldn't, you know, be able to continue without it. Or somebody who's writing about him. He's my guide in, in this regard. He's, he is the master of contemplation. So um, we'll continue this journey ourselves and look forward to uh, future conversations with you, Francis. So if anybody wants to get the book and read along with us, it is called St. John of the Cross, Master of Contemplation by Father Donald Haggerty from Ignatius Press. And we intend to go through the whole book. So the series will continue until we get to the end. Right, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we covered a lot of very important points. And I know Father Haggerty uh, develops them even further than what we have. Uh, but I think we've hit some really good, important highlights. And so, um, as always, we'd like to finish with a prayer. So, Deacon Danis, would you please lead us in a closing prayer? Sure. Let's bow our heads. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks. Father, we thank you for this spiritual conversation, this conversation drawing on the saints in karma, most especially St. John of the Cross for the profound wisdom he has to share about the meaning of life, about the course that we must travel, about the inevitable glory of the destiny. We thank you, Lord, for this great saint and for his writings. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who guides us internally as we make ourselves available to that guidance. Again, as we leave here, we ask for the guidance and the direction and the support of the Blessed Mother and her powerful intercession, for she is the mother of our order and of all those who aspire to a gift and experience of contemplation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I thank all of our listeners for tuning into this podcast. And if you would like to see some of our other podcasts, you can go to KarmaLikeConversations.com and you'll see probably over 200 of them there. Uh, we have a long history going here of doing podcasts. And of course, we invite you to stay tuned for our next uh, podcast in this series on contemplation. And again, thank you, Deacon Mark. It is such a joy to have you back and having these conversations with you. Likewise. Thank you, Francis. So until we meet again, God bless you.